Now, if you have your scriptures, open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. It's also printed in your, in your bulletin as well, if you'd like to look at that instead. Uh, we're going to finish today our look at community. And uh, so I, I, I really wanted to bring something that I felt was encouraging and would uh, kind of cap off our series. So we're going to read in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, just the first six verses. And so if you have your Bible or it's printed in your bulletin, uh, hear the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we've been looking at this theme of community and why it's necessary, why we need to be in community. Every one of you, all of you, and me included, all of us, human beings, we're wired certain way. Often, I think most of that wiring is from birth. You know, some people are just naturally a little bit more reserved, a little bit more introverted. There are others that are more extroverted, and they just need people. They need to be in contact all the time. And then there's some folks that are in the middle. And I really don't know your particular temperament. Some of you maybe have taken a, a temperament test or a psychological profile Myers-Briggs or one of these other things, and they can be very helpful, believe me, uh, to, just to know kind of where, where you fall in that spectrum. But there's never been anyone that's been tested except somebody who is perhaps a sociopath or a psychopath that doesn't need somebody. Uh, those people have a sickness why they want to be alone. So normal people need some communication with other human beings uh, to be healthy. Now, when we meet somebody, uh, generally what we do in the West, in America and Western countries, you meet somebody you've never met before after the first hello, hi, how are you? What is the first question you generally ask the other person? Most surveys will tell you, we, we in the West will say, what, uh, uh, what do you do? What do you do for a living? And then if they tell you, I'm a doctor, a lawyer, a, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, whatever the case may be, immediately we start to draw conclusions about that person, about who they are, based on what they do. And that is the worst possible thing in the world to communicate or try to communicate who you are based on what you do. And You'll see what I'm saying in a minute. Now, in other cultures, particularly now, my family comes from the Middle East, primarily from Lebanon and Syria. And in those countries, even in Asia and, and parts of Europe even, the first question that is asked, listen, not what you do. In fact, it would be considered rude in many of these cultures to ask, what do you do? They would ask you, tell me about your family. Tell me about your family. 
Now, in the Western culture, particularly in the melting pot of the U.S., that can become kind of difficult. But if you get around people that kind of know their family background and it goes back and back, they will tell you about their family. And that's what is... I cannot overstress how crucial it is that we start learning, especially those of us in the West who are really geared towards giftedness and charisma and how much, how much money I have or how good looking I am or my talents and my abilities, all these things, what we do, our job, our school, our education, how much theology or Bible we know. It could be anything. It could be good things. But we tend to measure ourselves by what we do and what we know. Not who we are. Or more importantly, whose we are. Your family. Who is your family? I was reading about, uh, I think it's in uh, uh, Matthew 16 and Mark and, and, and Luke as well, where Jesus is talking about the gates of hell. And He said the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the church. What he's saying is the gates of hell have been erected to keep us out of overtaking the kingdom, to keep us out, to push us out there. But as the church gets a reality of who it is and who the church is and who you are, we are called to assail the gates of hell. And Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against us. They wouldn't be able to withstand our assault. But I can tell you this, the only danger to the church is when we bring hell inside. When we bring hell inside the church, we talked about it in the weeks past, syncretism, outside stuff that we bring in, and then Inside, hunkering and bunkering and being afraid and being jealous and being envious and being angry and being bitter and wanting power and money and control and being unsatisfied with our weaknesses, which are the very things that Christ emphasizes. You don't need military power. You don't need monetary power. Do you need military? Yes. Do you need money? Yes. But you don't put your trust in things that can change, that can go away, like what you do. Maybe you're, maybe you're like me. I owned a dental laboratory and we worked with our hands all day. For 25 years, I was like working with my hands, like little tiny microscope and like this, and like, you know, working, working, working. What if I had gotten my hands cut off? Then what I am doesn't matter anymore. When I went to seminary, when I sold my business and went to Florida, nobody there knew what I did and nobody cared. They were not impressed at all by what I did. What they wanted to know is who are you? Let's find out who you are. And then we'll know what you can do. And folks, if we got a hold of it, look, let me tell you something. If we could get this into the lives of our little ones into the lives of our kids, instead of just, just concentrating 100% on their behavior, especially their behavior when they're around people, and you've got to be good, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to dress this way, and you've got to act this way, and you don't want to smoke, and you don't want to drink, and you don't want to chew, and you don't want to go out with girls that do. 
When that's all we tell our children is their behavior is what matters, they're going to go off the rails. And I know because that's what happened with my own children. I was just, you know, we went to church and I wanted them to be squared away. It's not that their behavior doesn't matter. But I would have, if I would have spent more time building into their lives who they are from the time that they were baptized as little ones, from the time they came to Holy Communion, telling them, you are not uh, an outsider. You're not a foreigner to this nation that we're part of. The body of Christ, you're part of it. You are in Him. And this is what Paul stressed in all of his writings, Peter too, the other apostles, and even Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he was concerned with people who they were, not what they did. The fact that they had money or tax collectors or whatever, that didn't impress him. Their sin didn't drive him away. He looked down into the soul and he knew that he could renew that soul. So the gates of hell will not withstand the church. But folks, the church is in danger when we bring hell inside. And so Paul, here in these few verses and many other places, I picked these because they're, it's pretty clear. Paul is saying, let us remember who we are. So look very quickly at verse 1. Paul identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord. This is not what he does. This is who he is. He's a prisoner. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle, I'm at other places, he does. But here, in 4.1, he says, I'm a prisoner, I'm a slave for Jesus Christ. I am not my own, I have been bought with a price. And he says then to them, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You see, that calling... What he just mentions here, a prisoner, has a context to it. It has more to it. The calling. And the calling you get from all three chapters of Ephesians, I dare you to read it and not be overcome with the amount of things that he says about us that are literally, folks, literally profound. I'm just going to give you just a snippet. These are just a few verses from the first chapter. Listen. And it goes on like this. Chapter 2, chapter 3, even the beginning of chapter 4, which we read, he doesn't start to start telling the church what to do until uh, verse 25 of chapter 4. Then he starts saying, now, now that you have this entire foundation, indestructible foundation built of who you are now, then he starts, giving indic- he starts giving imperative commands. And the imperative verbs from 425, that's all you hear. But before that, they're all indicative verbs. And I, you know, I don't know how good you are at grammar. I'm not. But I can read a dictionary. An indicative is what is. An imperative is what you do. Listen to what he says about who you are. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons, not slaves, as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious name, with which His name, all that He is, is contained in His name, with which He blessed us, not just blessed us, but He blessed us in the Beloved, in Christ. In other words, the way the Father sees you, no matter what you do or how you act, no matter what kind of conduct you get yourself into, He is still looking at you as a father looks upon a dearly beloved child, the same child He gave birth to, so to speak, in His Son Jesus. Think about that. He's looking at you exactly the way He looks at Jesus. And when you mess up, He doesn't step back and go, oh, what happened here? And then hold His nose and try to clean up the mess. No, He comes and gets in the mess with us. How do you know that? Because Jesus became a human being. That's our Christmas series, by the way. We're going to be doing, Dawson and I will be sharing a sermon series uh, that I've entitled Curdeus Homo. Why the God-man? Why the incarnation? You're going to love it. He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, listen, we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of trespasses, riches of grace. He lavished upon us. He united all things in Christ, in heaven above and on the earth beneath. And it is in Him that we obtain this inheritance. You see, everything that God has belongs to His Son, and everything His Son has belongs to you. And yet we will take our checkbooks out and look, I, I understand. Sometimes, you know, you, you're looking at how am I going to survive? How am I going to make it? Where is it going to come from? I don't know. But even if I starve to death, even if I can't pay, even if I die, I have an inheritance that has been predestined. He says, predestined, an inheritance that's predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to His will, sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is just a few verses out of chapter 1. Sealed. In other words, He put His seal on you. It's kind of like a brand. You know, He branded you. This is why I don't. I, I, I think when you hear people talking about the mark of the beast uh, being uh, uh, inside a vaccine or inside a credit card, a chip or something like that, that is ridiculous. The, the reality of it is you don't see the mark of the beast. It's not something you see. It's something you take. And you start taking it in and you say, no, I am not going to have this God. I'm not going to be weak. I'm not going to trust Him. I'm going to trust The beast. And Jesus is saying, no, you can be marked with the Holy Spirit. That's why we baptize our babies. I don't want my baby not having that mark on my baby. Well, but you can't see it. He doesn't know where he, she, and he don't know what they're doing. It doesn't matter. It's God's mark. He's the one marking it. He's the one saying, this one's mine. You've got to love that, folks. You've got to love knowing that He comes in close like that. Puts His mark, His name on you. And says to all the world, they're mine. They're my beloved because they belong to my Son. 
And He will go to no ends of the earth to protect you and provide for you now and in the world to come because you belong to Jesus. And so no matter what happens in the world, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. We're flooded with information from social media and the internet. It's not like it was even 25 years ago when you had to watch the evening news to get your news. Now it's everywhere and it's instantaneous and much of it is fake. Fake on the right, equal proportion, fake on the left. They're all putting out fake information. Do you have any idea where you can find the truth without any kind of distortion? There you go. Right here, you can find the truth. It's right there. You don't have to look at USA Today. But when you do look at USA Today, you can take your Bible and you say, Are they really, is this really true? I got an email from someone that said, uh, Joe Biden is going to take away all of our 401ks. Have you seen that? That's out there now. Joe Biden going to take away our 401ks. Do you know when that originated? The last time when Obama was elected. And before that, when Bill Clinton was elected. I'm old enough to remember those emails coming and saying, watch out, the Democrats are going to take this and this and this. And if you happen to be a Republican, then everybody's a racist. The U.S. is trash. Everything is bad. Our, all our rights are going to be taken away. They're going to come get your guns. Who's going to get your guns? The Democrats. How many Democrats have guns? None. How are they going to get your guns? We don't even think right. We don't know how to critically think because our emotions are on a short chain with liars. And so you've got to have a place where you can come back and find out who you are. Because that's the only thing that will last. Amen? That's the only thing that's going to last is who you are, not what you have or what you do. In the Proverbs it says, money is like a bird. It takes wings and flies away. And I, again, I'm old, old enough, I've seen it happen so many times in my life. I've had money and wow, next day it's gone. Anybody remember 2008? <laughs> Come on. Horatius Bonar said this. I love Horatius Bonar. If you haven't read The Everlasting Righteousness and some of his other works, I really commend them to you. But listen, he said this. He could tell. He could tell when a Christian was growing. In proportion to his growth in grace, he would do this one thing. He would elevate his master. He would make much of Jesus Christ. Much of being in the Son. Much of being in the grip of of a holy God who loves you and gave Himself for you. And talk less of what He Himself was doing. Become smaller and smaller in His own esteem until like the morning star, He faded away before the rising sun. <laughs> Folks, I don't know. You've you got to love that. Like John said, I must diminish. 
He must be exalted. How, how many of us are just, we're all geared up for this success and drive and 80-hour weeks and lots of money and lots of, and we, you know, we've driven our young girls crazy with beauty and ideas about what beauty is and our sons with what a man is. You know, men have beards and they have muscles and they have this and they have that. We've even tried to masculinize our Savior Jesus. We're not going to have it in our church. This is not for Christ the King. This is not us. Until my dying breath, folks, I'm going to tell you who we are and who He is. And not listen to all those other voices because they are not in your interest. The one person who has done nothing but speak blessings over His people from the, from the Genesis chapter 2 until the Revelation chapter 21 and 22 has been nothing but blessings upon His people. The one who's had nothing but good and redemptive things to say about us. The one person that never sees your flaws is this Jesus Christ, this Savior. Why doesn't He see them? Because they're in His hands. They're in His side. They were crushed onto His skull. Nails pierced His hands and His feet. What do you think we are doing here this morning? Why are you here? We're here because this man has done something for us and we know, down deep, we forget it. That's why we have to come to church every week, once every seven days. By about day four or five, I don't know about you, I'm ready to be in church. I'm worn out. My gas tank is empty. And I come back and I hear these words. Do nothing. Listen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others better than yourselves. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. I'll be very frank with you folks. If we don't do this, our lampstand is going to be removed and the church in America is going to be a footnote in history and it's going to have one word next to it. Shame. So, Christ the King. A little, little band of brothers and sisters here. Are you ready to step up into this? What I just read to you? No? Say yes if you will. If you don't, you don't have to say it out loud, but at least say something... This is, this is everything. This is your entire identity. This is who you are. And he says, humility. Look at, look at the uh, verses 2 and 3. Uh, have humility. That's a correct assessment of who you are. Gentleness. That means that you're soft. You're not harsh. You're not aggressive. Loud and bullying. Patience. This is an emotional calm. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, it's being willing not to stand up and jump up at every single thing that triggers you. But to s- step back, be quiet for a moment. 
As the Proverbs say, keep your mouth shut, you won't get into trouble. So you step back for a moment and you look and you assess and you think, that's patience. Then, after you've made your, 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 your perusal of what God has said and what the news is saying and all that, then you move back in. And you've got your, 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 your tool belt on so that you can discern good and evil, right and wrong. What's true? What to be afraid of, if anything, and what not to be afraid of? You can assess because God will give you wisdom. He will show you. Because you've been patient, you've waited long enough to hear something from His Word. It will be unusual if you hear something out here in your ears, but it won't be unusual for you to open your Bible and read these words. Come unto me, all you that are are heavy laden or tired. Come to me, I will give you rest. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Stand fast. If you don't stand fast, your faith is worth nothing. My goodness. If you don't take a moment, ground yourself in out before you go out into all the rest, good luck. It will overwhelm you because we just have too much. Patience, emotional calm, especially in the face of provocation or misfortune or suffering. And bearing up with one another. This is tolerating. Just, you know, I don't know. We just have a, such a short fuse... And Christians are supposed to have a long fuse. Now, I know, again, at temperament, some people are just born with, with a temper. Uh, and others, uh, you know, they're born with the ability to have a long fuse. But this is something we're supposed to be thinking about, folks. Am I one of those people that every time something provokes me, I'm just out there on Twitter and emails and sending, and, oh, my God, have you seen the latest disaster, you know, on the earth, and, and frightening everybody to death when you don't even know it's true? Instead, we should be tolerant, slow. Uh, folks, I'm talking to myself. I'm the worst. Every one of these. I, I hated writing a sermon. It was painful. I didn't see any of your faces while I was writing this. I just saw myself in the mirror and I go, I hate this. Why do I have to do this, Lord? And you know what he always tells me? Because you're the worst. Now, it's really not him saying that. All of these things, Paul said, are grounded in love. Bearing with one another in love. Love's not a feeling, folks. If love was a feeling, it would be a miserable emotion. Love can produce a feeling. But love is a commitment. Love is saying, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'll be there for you. I'll go through this with you. I'm for you. It's all of that. It's a commitment. And from that commitment of love will flow emotions. Sometimes there'll be good emotions, sometimes not so good. Sometimes jealousy, you know, I love them, but uh, what's going on over here? And you get jealous and, you know, like that. Those, are, those emotions are okay, but if you don't have the commitment down, rooted down deep, if it's just an emotion, then love is going to go like this and like this and like this forever. And that's not what God has called us to. All of these things, patience, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another, all grounded in love, not simply tolerating somebody and holding your nose. Oh, Chuck told us we had to do this. I just guess that. Oh, God, I hate this person. If you hate them, confess to God. I hate that person. And I would, 
I'm murdering them in my heart. Please forgive me. Do you see what happens now? They're not in the picture anymore. You're in the picture. You're confessing your sins to God. In other words, you're, you're not telling Him something He doesn't already know. The word confess in Greek means simply to agree with. So what you're doing is you're taking your junk and instead of self-protecting and saying, I have a right to be mad and I, I was put upon and I was this and I was that, marching up and down, which I've done many times. March, I, I do this better than any of you. Do you see how good, how much practice? They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't. And after all, I'm the pastor and I'm a holy person and blah, 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 blah. Instead, you open wide. You say, you know, I don't know what they're doing. I Honestly, Lord, I, but I know what's going on inside here. This is not a pretty picture. This is not a pretty picture. I can't do anything about them, but I can do something about this. And so therefore, I bow my knee to you. You light me up with your fire and I'll do whatever you say. I will lay my life down for you. Now you're talking. Now you're talking to a king, a master, a father, one who loves you and commands your respect, your awe, your worship, your fear. He draws you in close. Don't worry about what they did. It doesn't matter what they say. I'm the only one who matters. And I say, you're my beloved. You have nothing to fear. Folks, do you see how that would change our children? How that will change us? These qualities don't come overnight. They are a lifetime. And that's why you see in verses, uh, uh, verse 3, he says that you must be eager. This word eager means an intense effort, hard work, a zeal. He said you must be eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Why must you do that? Because it is going to be constantly under assault. And Satan is always going to show you the grass is greener over there. And it's not greener over there because he's never made one blade of grass Green in his entire existence. The devil can't make green grass. But I don't know. I confess Psalm 23 this morning. And who leads us into pastures that are green? It's the Lord who does that. He takes us into green pastures. So we're going to be under assault. Make no doubt about that. But God reconciled us. The basis for He reconciled us. His sworn enemies completely by grace because of love through faith. There's nothing you do. There's nothing you bring to Him in order for that transaction to take place. He brings it all. He transforms the heart. And in response to that, you see, He changes. This is what the new birth is, folks. He changes who you are. How many of you are wicked and awful and terrible sinners? That's who you are. Put that hand down. How dare you? No, you're not a wicked sinner. That person was put to death on the cross. You're a new creature. A new creation. Do you still sin? Yes. Are you a sinner because you sin? Yes. 
But are you a sinner because that's who you are? No. No, a thousand times no. You are this dearly beloved. And here he finishes it off, folks. And I'm going to do it quickly here. He, he does, you know, we think that the Apostle Paul and these other guys just sat down and kind of wrote and then all of a sudden these things, these amazing things pop out. No, he wrote this, uh, verse 4 through 6, and he used language that is remarkable and he used the word one seven times because seven times is perfection. And so here's what he did. One body, the body of Christ. One spirit, the Holy Spirit, sent from the Father and the Son. One hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. It's a living hope because He's alive. One Lord. Christ is our King. One faith. Christ alone. By faith alone. One baptism. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit that instant. There's no second baptism or third baptism and, you know, all these other... No, you get saved and you are baptized or immersed or sprinkled or whatever you want to call it. You are covered with Holy Spirit. And He promises to, to clothe you and never let you go. One baptism, one God and Father of all over all, through all, and in all. All encompassing. Seven times he said, one, one, one. Do you know, do you see why unity is so important? Why we're talking about it in church. Our unity is being threatened inside and out. And as a pastor, I can't sit by and not say something. I don't answer to you. I answer to God and I see it. And believe me, it's not just me. This is all we're talking about at Presbytery. All that our, our, our general assembly that meets once a year, that's all we're talking How do we stay together in this climate of horrible polarization and hatred and all this stuff? How do we do it? And folks, the only way I know is to return back to our first love. Making Jesus Christ Lord and King. One, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Was Jesus Christ divided? Was He crucified? Were you crucified for Him or Him for you? Did the Apostle Paul, were you baptized in the name of the Apostle Paul? That's what he asked the Corinthian church. Because they were filled with division and anger at one another. Paul said, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together, being of one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. Wouldn't that be something? Don't look out only for your own interests. Take the interests of others in. You must have the same attitude as Christ. Here it is. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave, being born a human being. And as a human, he humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, 
God highly elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, the question of the church is now and always has been, will you bow your knee to this king? Will you, get, will you bow your knee? Will you confess him as your Lord? And if, that, if he's your Lord, then he has possession of you. Will you trust him? That's what it's going to take for him to be your Lord and for him to be your Savior. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for this. We know that uh, even in our our wonderful country with so much prosperity, we're still being assailed with fear and doubt and sometimes deep heartache and suffering. Things happen in our life. We don't know why and we don't understand uh, if we've done something wrong. And I, I pray, Father, that, that you will surround your people, that we can go into 2022 this next year on a footing of strength and faith rooted and grounded in the grace of our Lord Jesus and in the mercy that you have displayed in him. And so I pray for every heart in our church, Father, that you will fill us with your blessed Holy Spirit and remove that fear and doubt and fill our hearts with faith and trust in you. Even when things look, and especially when things look bad, that is no indication that we've lost your blessing, but rather an indication that we are being assailed because we are faithful. Please help us to see that, to trust you. In Christ's name, amen.